Father, as we come before God's word this morning, please join me as we pray. What a wonderful hymn. What a wonderful reminder of the fact that you are in control. And Lord, this morning as we come before your word, we perhaps come with heavy hearts because of events that have happened during the week. Some are rejoicing and are able to lift their voices in praise and adoration to you. But Father, all of us have taken time out of this week to be here this morning, to be with your people and to hear your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend that as we open your word, that you would speak to us through it. That you might get the glory and the praise and the honour that you are due for all of life. We commit our time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always difficult coming to a church that's not your own, in the sense of there are some of you that I do know, some of you I don't. And uh, to know what to preach. But in the average church on any given Sunday, there are different groups of people. And Hans has reminded us of that in his opening this morning. But we are here to praise and honour God. Some of you will have been grieving this past week. I know I have a friend whose husband died this week. Some of you are experiencing uncertainty, perhaps regarding employment, whether you are trying to find a job or whether you are trying to keep a job. For some of you, this week will have been relatively problem-free. It's just been an average week. And for some of you, this may have been a wonderful week and you have come to church this morning and just rejoice over what God has done. And in a congregation of this size, there will be all sorts of people across that gamut. So how do I, as a visiting pastor, come here to help all of you, no matter what your circumstances are? What passage of scripture would prove beneficial? Well, the Psalms are a wonderful treasure chest of material for us. It's somewhat easier for me as a visiting pastor because a lot of the psalms are short and are self-contained, so they're a lot easier to preach in that sense. So I ended up choosing Psalm 33. So please turn there in your Bibles, if you've got your Bibles with you, Psalm 33. And I trust that this psalm will be an encouragement to all of us this morning. So please follow along as I read Psalm 33 to start with. Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works are done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. 
By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Now before we start looking at this psalm, I want to address those of you this morning who really struggled to come to church this morning. Most likely, as I read that psalm, you sort of responded something like this. Oh, great. We've got a visiting pastor, and he's chosen a joyful, happy psalm to preach. I should have stayed in bed. (laughs) Well, I want to address that, that thought right up front for you. I don't want you to switch off before I get started. Especially if you've got comfy chairs now. (laughs) Please listen to me for another few minutes at least. Let me address your situation by using an illustration. Imagine yourself driving a, driving a car along on a sunny day. You've been driving through a heavily wooded part of the road and there is a tree canopy over the top of you and your eyes have adjusted to the relative gloom. But as you go around a bend in the road, suddenly the, the trees vanish and suddenly you're out in the sunshine And you're momentarily blinded by the sunlight that hits you. So what you do is you probably quickly scramble for and lower the sun visor. So that half of the sky is then uh, shielded by that sun visor. Now, think about what you've done in doing that. Obviously, doing so, lowering the sun visor gives your eyes time to adjust to the instant glare. But if you think about others in the car with you, they probably have not even noticed. Obviously, they can close their eyes if they need to. You can't do that as a driver. But think about for a moment what has actually changed for you. The action of lowering a sun visor in a car does not suddenly cause the sky to darken. In fact, lowering the sun visor actually changes nothing as far as the circumstances are concerned. 
But what does what it does alter is your perception of those circumstances. Lowering the sun visor gives the pupils within your eyes time to contract, and as a result, you are given you are able to keep on driving safely. Okay? Now let me apply that analogy to your circumstances. Just as others in your car may have been oblivious to the fact that you needed to put the sun visor down, so too those who are here in church may be unaware of your problems and situations. But in the same way that lowering a sun visor changes your perception of of the road on a sunny day, so too coming to before God's word can change your perception of your circumstances. And that change in perception makes a massive difference for you. So before you switch off, please give me an opportunity to change your perception of your circumstances using the words of Psalm 33. The title of our sermon this morning is Reasons to Rejoice. Reasons to Rejoice. And I want to look at this psalm under three headings. First of all, we'll look at the command to rejoice. Secondly, we'll look at reasons to rejoice. And thirdly, our response. Now, as you come to Psalm 33, if you look there in your Bible, you'll see that there's no author or title given to it. I've got the ESV this morning and it's got a title there, but often in in the Psalms you'll actually find that there's something at the start which tells you where it comes from and actually that is inspired as well. The titles within our Bible where mine says the steadfast love of the Lord is not part of the Bible. But the ones where it says uh, this is of David, it was from this time, da-da-da-da, that's actually part of Scripture. But you can see for Psalm 33 that there is nothing like that there. In addition, this this psalm is neither scholarly, nor is it arranged in any sort of fancy poetical fashion. It's not an acrostic poem like some of them are, nor is it chiastic. Psalm 33 is just a straightforward, simple psalm. Yet its truths are profound. So let's have a look at Psalm 33. The first point this morning, the command to rejoice. The command to rejoice. Look at verses 1 to 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now these verses are sort of like a trumpet call, calling saints to lift their voices in praise to God. And you see there in verse 1 that it says, shout for joy in the Lord. As Christians we are to rejoice and we can rejoice because we are in Christ. I love Spurgeon. And in the sermon I've got quite a few quotes from him. And these are from a variety of books. So this is from Spurgeon's first quote. He says, The fact that God exists and the fact that he is such a God and our God, ours forever and ever should awaken within us an unceasing and overflowing joy. To rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal. But to rejoice in God is heavenly. 
That's why we sang that song. I mean, I didn't know we were going to be singing that song right before I got up. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. As you sang those words, did they cause you to leave your problems behind and to look to God? That's the idea of that hymn. And I'm thankful for you guys choosing it this morning. But verse 1 and one to 3 also has the same, uh, same idea in it. Now verse 1 also says, Praise befits the upright. It is right for God's saints to praise him. Why? Because he has done so much for us. As Hans also reminded us this morning, count your blessings one by one. Now, if you've got a bookmark, you might like to place it there in Psalm 33. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you some of these blessings. 1 Peter chapter 1. Both of Peter's epistles were addressed to Christians undergoing persecution and hardship. And the basis of his encouragement to them was their inheritance, which is in heaven. And the fact that the inheritance remains imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Okay, follow along as I read. First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuine, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Wonderful verses. If you are a Christian this morning, you have an inheritance in heaven which can never fade away. And so this past week, as my friend's husband died... We know he's in heaven because he was a wonderful believer. Spurgeon again said this, I have heard of some good old woman in a cottage who had nothing but a piece of bread and a little water and lifting up her hands she said as a blessing, what, all this and Christ too? This past week I went to visit mum. My mum's now just celebrated her 91st birthday this week. And mum's mind is failing her. And it's hard. But I, I, I didn't actually quote that, but I read it from memory. I've, I've shared it with a number of people. And I quoted it to mum. And she just started weeping. Silently weeping. And the reason for that was that in that instant I was able to see through the fog that is in her brain, in her mind, 
And I was able to see the anchor which firms her soul on Christ. You know the verse in Hebrews 6, we have an anchor that keeps the soul, or the hymn from that verse. I wasn't able to see the rock down under the ocean. I was not able to see the fact that the anchor was holding onto it. But as that chain came out of the the ocean and was attached to mum's vessel, her ship, it was tight. It was tight. And I was able to see the assurance that God has for his saints. That my mother, who decades ago came to saving faith and put her trust in Christ and raised us according to God's word, that anchor holds. And I got a glimpse of that chain this week. That's what Peter's talking about. It is undefiled. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And when I quoted those words from Spurgeon, mum just wept. And the fog cleared for a second. And God allowed me the privilege of seeing mum's faith. Even as a 91 year old whose mind is mush most of the time. That was a privilege. But if you this morning as a Christian have been struggling with the circumstances of this week and if those circumstances have blinded your view then what I want to encourage you to do this morning is to lower your sun visor, S-O-N visor without wanting to sound corny. Lower your sun visor to allow Jesus to alter the perception of your circumstances. And that's why it's a very good thing for us as Christians to come together on a Sunday morning. Because doing so helps us each to focus not so much on our problems, but on Christ. I was reading a sermon on the wonderful verses from Isaiah, which Jesus speaks, uh, which speak of the Saviour. They're quoted in Matthew 12, verses 20 to 21. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you feel this morning like a bruised reed or a smouldering wick? The slightest breath will take away the last gleam on that wick. Jesus cares for you. And he binds up the bruised reeds and he gently fans the smouldering wicks back into flame. Richard Sibbs, one of the Puritans, wrote a book on this topic. It's called The Bruised Reed. And I do recommend it to you. People, we need to look to Jesus. But it works the other way around. As a pastor, I too need your exhortation on occasions for me to look to Christ rather than the problems that I experience. And fortunately, Psalms like Psalm 33 help us in that area. 
But this psalm doesn't just command us to give glory to God, it also provides ample reasons for us to glorify God. And this brings us to point number two. Point number two this morning, four reasons to rejoice. Four reasons to rejoice. Let's have a look at the first one is rejoice because of God's attributes. Look at verses four and five. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his stead, full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Here we find four of God's attributes. The first one is the word, his word is upright. All that God says he's going to do. The Bible makes it very clear. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at verses 18 to 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Likewise, you needn't turn there, but listen to Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the assumed answer is, of course he will. The fact that the word of God, the Lord, is upright, has both positive and negative implications. For those of us who are Christians, it has very, it's very good news. All the promises in Scripture will surely come to pass. I mentioned my love of Spurgeon. One of Spurgeon's little books, which you can still buy quite happily, is called The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. And what he's done is he's put together 365 promises in, of Scripture which apply to Christians. And he's put them into this book. So in the same way that you may receive a bank check with your name on it and you can take that to the bank and expect to receive the funds eventually um, that are written on that check, so too every believer can expect to receive God's promises when they are rightly understood. So many problems and promises within Scripture do apply to us. Now, add to that the fact that God doesn't lie... And that means that we can confidently cash each one of those checks or those promises that we read from Scripture. So Spurgeon's put these promises together, one for each day of the the year. These are promises that apply to Christians that you can take to the bank and say, Lord, I'm claiming that promise. The checkbook of the Bank of Faith, I do recommend it. But just as God's word proves upright in bestowing blessings on believers... So too he then therefore, therefore means that he is upright in concerning promises or promises of wrath for unbelievers. Now if you are not a Christian here this morning, the passages of scripture which speak of the horrors of eternal hell ought to strike terror into your hearts. 
Matthew 13, verses 41 to 42, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is faithful even to bring about those promises. Unless you repent and turn away from your sin, accepting the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ to cover the punishment that your sins deserve, you will pay the penalty for those sins yourself. God does not lie. Eternal punishment in hell awaits all who refuse to submit to Jesus Christ and make him the boss of their life. As he said in Matthew 3 verse 7, well, the apostle, uh, sorry, John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. Now if this describes you and you wish to be relieved of your sin, please come and speak to my, myself or one of the elders or Mick after the service. We'd love to talk to you. So the first reason to praise God is, is that his word is upright. Secondly, all his work is done in faithfulness. You see that there in verse 4 as well. If we go back to Psalm 33. All God's deeds align perfectly with his words. And again, this has implications both for believers and for unbelievers. For the believer, God is faithful to sanctify and to perfect us. He will cause us to stand before him holy and righteous, even if we feel like a bruised reed or a smouldering wick. But equally, God is faithful to exact vengeance on unbelievers. We read Psalm 96 this morning. Yep. Psalm 94 verses 1 and 2 says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. The proud are those who think they know more than God does. They therefore live their life as though God will somehow turn a blind eye to their sin. They think, sure, God might punish those who are really bad, but he won't punish me. Yes, he will. Psalm 33 verse 4 tells us that all his work is done in faithfulness, including giving the proud what they deserve. So God's word and his works are upright. Thirdly, he loves righteousness and justice. You see that there at the beginning of verse 5. Every act and decision that God makes is based on righteousness and justice. All his works are absolutely right and absolutely just. He will never make a wrong judgment. And again, this includes blessings for Christians and wrath for unrepentant sinners. Truly, every one of those attributes ought to cause us to rejoice in him if we belong to him. How could it possibly be otherwise, unless we do not belong to him? Fourthly, we see the fourth attribute, the earth is full of his steadfast love. Again, let me quote Spurgeon. He says, Come here astronomers, geologists, naturalists, botanists, chemists, miners, all of you who study the works of God, for all your truthful stories confirm this declaration. From the microscopic midge in the sunbeam to the massive leviathan in the ocean, all creatures own the bounty of their creator. 
Even the pathless desert blazes with some undiscovered mercy and the caverns of ocean conceal the treasures of love. Earth might have been as full of terror as of grace, but instead thereof it teems and overflows with kindness. End quote. Are these not all attributes in which we can rejoice as believers? God's word is upright. All his works are done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the whole earth is full of his steadfast love. So we are to praise God for his, faithful, for, for his attributes. That's the first reason to praise him. The second reason is rejoice because of his creative ability. Verses 6 to 9. Now, many Christians today are convinced that when God created the world, he used evolution. And some even make out that the record we have in Genesis 1-2 to somehow allows for the passage of millions of years. But let's have a look at that. Turn back, please, to Genesis chapter 1. Because the biblical record says that God simply spoke the word and it all came into being. And I want to show you. Look at verses 1 to 11. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters he, he, that were gathered together he called seas and saw, God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed and according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And so it goes on. Right, this is God's creating work in the first three days. There's no millions of years there. Instead, as it said, there was evening and morning the first day, the second day, the third day. God simply spoke things into existence, choosing to use a 24-hour cycle that we call day and night. Now, when you think about it, the astonishing fact is not so much that creation took so little time, as in it didn't take millions of years, The astonishing thing is that it took so long. Why did God choose to take six whole days to create the world? Why did he not simply speak it all into existence on the first day? Why? Because he was setting in place a principle for our benefit. We are to work six days and enjoy a day of rest. That's what creation teaches us. Now people then object to a 24-hour day creation model because they see it as primitive, written by people that they perceive as primitive and therefore not as intelligent as we are today. 
Instead, they say we must interpret these verses some other way because obviously man was not as, as knowledgeable then as he is now, or so the thinking goes. Very often, such people have been brainwashed by ev- evolutionary thinking. Uh, you've seen the pictures of early man where he is depicted as being sort of a brutal ignoramus with a club over his shoulder who dragged women around by the hair saying words like me, og, right? And living in caves. Obviously, such some people chose to live in caves, that's true. But according to scripture, who was the first man to build a city? Does anyone know? Who was the first person to build a city in scripture? You may have heard of me. His name was Cain. Who was Cain? Adam's son. Genesis 4 verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and Cain built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So where do cavemen come into that? They're not there. The concept of cavemen is unbiblical. And as for man, early man being an ignoramus, you need to remember that Adam named all the animals in one afternoon. This was day six of creation, Genesis 2 verse 19. And he did it before God created Eve, which was most likely created on that same day. So sinless Adam had perfect use of his brain. By comparison, it is modern man that is the ignoramus. Now, those who argue that God used, create, uh, created using some form of evolution tend to view the scriptures after Genesis 12 as being authoritative. Now, with that in mind, turn back to Psalm 33 and look at verses 5 to 9. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. So Psalm 33 reiterates exactly what we read in Genesis chapter 1. right? Verse 6, by the word of the Lord. The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their spoke, all, all, all their host. Verse nine, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the Bible clearly states that when God created, he merely spoke and everything came into being, just as Genesis one and two claims. The question that we need to consider is this. Why do then Christians want to include evolution in the creation account? Why? Because many Christians desire the approval of the unbelieving world and are willing to sacrifice simple belief in God's word in order to get it. Let me quote Douglas Wilson. This is from Jonathan Safati's book, The Genesis Account. He says this, quote, The more we care about honouring God, the less we will care about receiving honours from men. The more we care about being approved in a, as a faithful workman of God, the less we will care whether others condemn or oppose us on their own puny authority, 2 Timothy 2.15. It is said among us, if we continue to maintain that God created the world in six days, we will not be granted academic respectability, to which we must reply, well, who cares? 
Why should we care that the guardians of the academy believe we are not as not intellectually respectable. They believe that the moose, the sperm whale and the meadow lark are all blood relatives. Why do we want their seal of approval? End quote. And finally, the psalmist had a desire that even Gentile nations praise the Lord. Now, by the time when the New Testament came about, the Jews hated Gentiles. You'll see that in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels. But back at this time, things were very different. Even without scriptures, Gentiles can fear God. And you remember when the spies went into Canaan, that Rahab told them that the fear of Yahweh had fallen on the people of Jericho. She herself then took steps to become part of Israel. So we are to praise God because of his attributes, his creative ability. Thirdly, rejoice because of his sovereign rule over mankind. Verses 10 to 15. God rules over all mankind. Look at verses 10 and 11. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Now the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is liberating for Christians. He is in control. Yet, he, on the other hand, he desires that we pray to him as well. But when we pray, we do so submitting to his perfect plan. God is sovereign. Yet God is also sovereign over unbelievers. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And as we can see in those verses there, God not only acts sovereignly in the affairs of individuals, even unbelievers, but he is sovereign over nations. We saw this recently in the Australian federal election. All the pundits, you will remember, predicted that the Liberal Party could not possibly win. Yet God's sovereign plan was that they would win. He did the same with Donald Trump when he was elevated to the White House in 2016. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement. But we know that God is sovereign and, and obviously this is what God's will was because that's what happened. In response, you and I can pray with confidence, submitting totally to God's good plan and adjust our plans according to his good will. That's what God desires us to do. Right, look at verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. In these verses, we see God's sovereignty also exercised over all mankind. Now, if you did history at school, you'll probably remember learning about the deists. The deists were the ones who coined the philosophy the age of reason. You may have heard of that back in the 1700s. They believed that God was disinterested in mankind. They believed that the age of reason and understanding based on scientific discovery would usher in a period of utopia. They pictured God as similar to someone winding a clock and leaving it to run. So they believed sort of in God's existence, 
Remember, this was the time of the Great Awakening of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley. Thousands of people were coming to saving faith, so they couldn't really deny God's existence. However, they believed that God was totally detached from life. But as we have seen, history has shown that the age of reason was a sham. The philosophy just didn't work. Those of you who are sort of around my age may remember the 1980s when John Farnham sang these words, What about the world around us? How can we fail to see? And now that our fathers have gone and we've been left to carry on, what about the age of reason? But there was no reply to John Farnham's question. Instead, thinking man has embraced what is called a post-Christian era. This is another, another philosophy that will also fail. However, unlike the age of reason, this philosophy starts by denying God's existence. So what is God's response to this claim? Well, keep your finger there in Psalm 33. Turn back to Psalm 14 and we will see what God's, God's response is. Psalm 14, look at verses 1 to 3. To the choir master of David, that's the bit that I was saying before is is part of the inspired word. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, if you happen to have a King James Bible with you this morning, you'll see that the words there is in verse 1 are actually in italics. That indicates that they were not there in the Hebrew text. Verse 1 literally therefore reads, The fool has said in his heart, No God. And there's two aspects to that. Not only does he say no to God, but he also says there is no God. And Psalm 14 verse 1 calls him a fool. In a sermon entitled The Sin of Unbelief, Spurgeon said this, quote, Infidelity, deism and atheism are the most terrific eruptions of the volcano of unbelief. Unbelief profanely stalks the earth, uttering the rebellious cry, No God, striving in vain to shake the throne of the divinity, by lifting up its arm against Jehovah. Every man knows that God exists. Romans 1 verses 18 to 20, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. So in order for man to say that God does not exist, think of a beach ball being held under the water. I can't see a beach ball. That's what it's like. As soon as they let go, up it comes. So the fourth reason to then praise God is to rejoice because of his salvation. This takes us to verse 16 to 19 in Psalm 33. Now, even though the fact that human beings may be aware of God's attributes, his creative ability and his sovereign rule over all mankind, 
they can still hate him. And Martin Luther, this was actually his um, experience. Martin Luther, listen to his own words. He said, truly I was a pious monk. If ever a monk had got to heaven by monkery, I had been that monk. Further on he says this, although I was a holy and irreproachable monk, I loved not the just and holy God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret rage against him and hated him because not satisfied with terrifying us, his miserable creatures already lost in original sin with his law and the miseries of life, he still further increased our torment by the gospel. But when by the Spirit of God I comprehended these words, when I learned how the sinner's justification proceeds from the pure mercy of the Lord by means of faith, then I felt myself revived like a new man and entered at open doors into the very paradise of God. And as I had previously with all my heart hated those words, the justice of God, so from that time I began to esteem and love them as words most sweet and most consoling. In truth, these words were to me the gate of paradise. End quote. You see, even having an orthodox understanding of God's attributes will not help if it leaves out his mercy and his love. To minimize the love of God and only preach his wrath is unbiblical. But likewise, to minimize the wrath of God and only preach his love is also unbiblical. Scripture is clear that while God will punish unrepented sinners, it also teaches that he loves repentant sinners and he saves them. God is merciful. And this verse also rejoices in that fact. Look at verses 16 to 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Only God can save sinners. You cannot trust men, whether kings or armies, verse 16. You cannot trust in military might, verse 17. Instead, it is the Lord who saves men from sin, verse 19. And his eye is on those who fear him and trust in his steadfast love. Do not look to men for salvation. You need to look to Christ. He alone can save you from sin. But for those of us who do know the Lord, our response to this psalm is very different. And we find it in verses 20 to 22. And this brings us to our final point this morning, which we'll look at only briefly. Point number three this morning, our response, verses 20 to 22. And these verses express that believer's confidence. Look at those verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Struggling believer, if, you, uh, if you're struggling this morning, you need to also take the Lord Jesus Christ as your help and shield. You need to wait for him, and you too can be glad in him and trust in his holy name. This is one of those promises of scripture that you can take to the bank. 
Now I started this morning addressing those experiencing hard circumstances who struggle to get to church this morning. And in the same way that lowering the car's sun visor gives your pupils in your eyes time to contract and help you cope with the sun glare, so too this psalm reminds us to refocus our attention back onto Christ. And if you see yourself this morning as a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, you need to look to Christ. He will support you. He will bind those bruises. He will coax that spark back into life. Look to him and him alone. And the psalmist then finishes off with a simple prayer, which even those bruised reeds and smoldering wicks are able to pray. Look at verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And it may be this morning that if you've come in and you aren't one of these bruised reeds, you might just be able to take verse 22 and that's all. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Notice that in that verse there is no hope in that, with that bruised reed in and of itself. It doesn't say, I will stand there and you can bind me up. It's like, I can't even stand. You will need to support me as you bind me up. That's what that verse is saying. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If you are a bruised and almost broken Christian, look up and see Jesus. Take your eyes off your earthly problems and look back to him. That verse is a, is a closing, is a fitting way to close our sermon. Please bow with me and we will pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for a reminder which from time to time all of us need to take our eyes off our circumstances and to look back to Christ, to lower that sun visors, to take that glare out so that we can continue our walk. And Lord, that final verse, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Lord, I do pray for those this morning who are struggling, the bruised reeds, the smoldering wicks, that, Father, they would look to you for binding and for coaxing back into life. May the power of your word this morning affect that change through the Holy Spirit. And may this sermon be an encouragement for all of us to once again look to you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you also for the fact that our salvation remains in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, eternal. We thank you for these, th- these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.